I will be reading from Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, put it on a stand and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others and let them that you may see the good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, good morning. I like this. This is a, this is a good setup. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I'm excited about a lot of things, but one thing that I daily am getting excited about is the work going on here at the Maryville Church of Christ and what I think is in store for our future. I think there is a very bright future for this church. I think that it's true with, uh, with the addition of uh, the elders and the, the expansion of our eldership. I think we have some really good and godly men that we're looking at, and I'm really excited about what the future holds there. I think when it comes to the building and the renovations, that's going to be, uh, it's going to be needed. It's going to be very beneficial to this church. I think there are in very, a lot of practical ways, uh, especially for some of the young kids and for the, the mothers. I think there's just going to be a lot of benefits to it. I think a lot of our youth programs right now are doing fantastically well. Uh, I am excited about the preschool. I'm excited about uh, uh, Soul Train, and I'm excited about uh, uh, Lads to Leaders and so many different things that are taking place that when you stop and you think about the work going on here at Maryville, and then you add into it some of our, our longstanding uh, uh, works that we've been involved in in the mission field, it's, it, there's a lot to be excited about, and I hope that you feel that and you experience that as well. Um, I love this church, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for everyone who's here this morning. I'm also thankful for any uh, visitors or or guests that we have here with us. Uh, This is our first time worshiping in this building. We'll be here a little while, Uh, so we're we're getting used to everything a little bit. But uh, sometimes a a new environment can be exciting, can can help break the monotony that sometimes inadvertently can take place in our worship and remind us of why we're here and of what really matters. So I'm excited about that, and uh, I hope that you are also. We are continuing the lessons that we've been doing from the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, and we saw that You know, there's a lot of different things Jesus says in them, but one of the overall points I think that is being made is a point that will uh, be, you know, uh, the, the major emphasis throughout Matthew, which is the kingdom of heaven is coming in highly unexpected ways. Um, when you get to the end of Matthew, the grand irony of the, holy, uh, the whole process, the whole inauguration of God's kingdom, is that the king himself is not the one who's given a crown of gold and a beautiful robe and placed on a nice clean throne uh, with cushions and comfort in front of all of his people. The true king of the universe is the one whose crown is made out of thorns, whose robe is blood-soaked, and instead of a, uh, a throne with a nice plaque, it's a cross with a plaque declaring him the king. Uh, he is mocked and he is ridiculed, and yet he is the one who is the ultimate ruler of all. He's the one who at the end of the book says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go make disciples of every nation. His, he is such a grand ruler and king that there's no border that limits his kingdom. He says, go into every nation. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're seeing what that kingdom looks like. And surprisingly, when he starts off by talking about who is truly blessed in his kingdom, 
He doesn't say all the people we would ordinarily think of as the most blessed. He doesn't mention the rich and famous or the great athletes or the, the, the politicians with power and fame and all of that stuff. That's not the direction he goes. He says the humble, the poor in spirit, those who are lacking yet hungering and thirsting and craving for righteousness, those who are meek, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. It's like the people who we would often perhaps think of as suffering or going through hardship or, or the people who are craving something better, he looks at them and says, no, you guys matter. You are who the kingdom of heaven is for. And you will be richly blessed not only now, but certainly in the age to come. Because if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you will be filled. If you are mourning, you will be comforted. If you are seeking peace now, if you are a peacemaker now, you'll be called a son of God. And on and on he goes, giving promises of future blessing to those who right now might be going through the daily hardships of life, of being neglected and being forgotten by the world around them. But then he tells them, and this is where we're going to be, this is the passage that was just read a moment ago, that you, who I just mentioned, you who are persecuted and who are at the bottom of society, will be the lights of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You know what those things have in common? They stand out and they are noticeable. They are no longer the neglected things that you walk right past and no one cares about or thinks about. They actually make an impact in everything around them. Light influences everything around it. Salt influences the whole dish. Uh, You know, like, like being that makes you stand out. Now, standing out is an interesting concept because people have very different views about whether or not they want to stand out or perhaps in what ways they want to stand out. You know, you talk a lot about introverts and extroverts and all that stuff. And to some people being told everyone's eyes are going to be on you will make them elated. Some people, if you say everyone's eyes are going to be on you, they would rather die. Um, people have very different views about, uh, about standing out and, and everyone looking at them and, and all of that stuff. But one thing that I think is interesting is I do think there is some commonality, at least, uh, at least in our daydreams, about uh, the types of things that we think would be pretty neat. You know, they, they might not everyone has the same interests, but, you know, I can think, I, I think there's a pretty common uh, idea of sometimes wanting to say something where everyone around you laughs. Most people like that idea. You want to stand out for something like that. A lot of people, and this might not be universal, a lot of people when it comes to uh, being a great athlete or something, they want to make the, they want to hit the three-point shot as the buzzer's going and everyone cheers. They want to stand out for something like that. Or just something uh, at work where you accomplish something, you finish something, and you get uh, noticed for it, and you get uh, recognized for it. Um, you know, there are, <laughs> there are times when maybe, um, maybe you're in the shower, and you're daydreaming and you're thinking, and what's going on in your head is a, a debate, an argument with maybe someone that you, something you read on Facebook or some person that you had a conversation with a few days earlier, and you're going back and forth. And it's amazing how great we are in those debates, uh, how, how talented we are when it comes to, to saying what is right and wording it so well. And the person that we're talking to is often befuddled by our genius and they don't know how to respond. And, uh, and that's always a great feeling. That's why those, those internal debates where you win all the arguments, those are a fantastic feeling. There's a, uh, 
I suppose I'm showing my age a bit here, but uh, in the 90s, there was a sitcom called Seinfeld, and there was a whole episode uh, dedicated to, uh, uh, there's uh, one of the main characters' name is George, and he was in a meeting, and he got made fun of for how much shrimp he was eating there at the meeting. And on the way home, he was playing over that scene in his head, and he thought of the perfect comeback. It was actually kind of a lame comeback, but he, he had these visions of his head. If he just would have said that, then everyone would have laughed, and everyone would have been great. And so he tried so hard to rework the situation to get made fun of again so that he could stand up and make his point, and it didn't go well. But, uh, but that, that's a common daydream, I think, that people have, is you say something and everyone laughs, or someone is wrong, and you're able to correct them. Because there are some things in which we would like to stand out. There are some things in which we would like uh, people to recognize how good we've done at something. Or how intelligent or funny or smart or even righteous and good we are. Not saying those are always the driving force for what we should do. And they probably shouldn't be the driving force for what we should do. But I think sometimes internally, can't help but think about that. Well, when Jesus is talking to the crowds, he's telling them, you guys are going to stand out. You guys are going to be the light that the rest of the world looks to. You're going to be the salt that makes the dish so much better. You're going to be that city that's up on the hill that everyone looks towards as as the example of who we are to be. Those are the three examples that Jesus actually uses in Matthew chapter 5. He uses salt. He uses light and he uses a city. And I think they all convey different aspects of this idea that Jesus is is, uh, pushing towards of his disciples being a unique people in the world around them. And when you think about salt, for example, there are a lot of different, uh, you know, purposes and functions of salt. And a lot of times when I hear lessons on this... uh, that they focus on salt as a, its preserving impacts and, and salt and, and uh, a lot of what it does. But what Jesus actually emphasizes in 513 when he talks about salt, it's pretty much one thing mostly, which is its taste. Salt makes things taste better. And there's an extent to which what he's telling his kingdom is you should be making the world taste better. The world should be more flavorful. The world should be more enjoyable because you are in it. Um, you know, this, uh, this idea of salt making something taste better, it's, it's used a couple of times in the New Testament. Uh, Paul uses it in Colossians about our speech. When he says uh, that you should uh, speak with grace, uh, you behave with grace towards outsiders, and uh, that you should let your speech be seasoned with salt so that you know how to respond to each person. You know, there are... There's an extent to which a lot of people condemn the idea of sugar-coated preaching. And I get that. You know, you don't want everything to be all whatever. But... Paul does advocate salt-covered preaching, you know, uh, still make it taste good, you know, like there is, when you're talking to people about the kingdom, you shouldn't try to make it sound as harsh and bad as possible. You should actually try to make it sound good. Like it is a good thing. And if, if all people ever hear is what you condemn and what you hate, it doesn't actually sound like a great thing to be a part of. But the kingdom of God is powerful and transformative and life-changing and life-giving. And so speak of it in such ways. Jesus here isn't even so much talking about what we say, though, but who we are and how we live. And how we conduct ourselves in the world around us. And he's saying, when you live the way that I'm going to tell you how to live, you're going to be the salt of the earth. And that salt has a taste. He brings up an odd, I guess, hypothetical situation in uh, chapter 5 and verse 13. 
when he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? I don't know if you guys have ever had salt in your kitchen for a long time, but it doesn't tend to become tasteless. Salt is something that retains its taste for a very, 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 very long time, possibly forever. Like salt isn't, you don't usually worry about salt losing its taste. But I'll tell you one way that salt can lose its taste is if you have uh, salt and you start putting, say, flour in it and you add more and more and more and you have less and less salt and more and more flour, what can end up happening is ultimately you're just replacing it, but you can so dilute it that you don't taste it anymore. You can put so many other contaminants or so many other things in there that the salt becomes something you don't even notice because it has been diluted with other things. And And I think that might be one of the ways in which Jesus is warning about the salt becoming tasteless. What happens to salt that becomes tasteless is it serves no beneficial function anymore for for making things better. And so what you do is you just toss it out. Jesus gives a couple of parables and of teachings throughout Matthew that, that surround the idea that you will have the kingdom in front of you. You will have a kingdom mindset that you're trying to live towards, but you still live in a world. There is wheat, but there are also tares and weeds. Uh, And sometimes that world can influence and distract and pull you in directions away from the kingdom to which you are headed. In uh, the parable of the the soils or the parable of the sower, he talks about um, seed that is sown on rocky soil and seed that is sown amongst the thorns. And when he talks about those, those are symbolic of things like persecution or of wealth or of worldly concerns. And what can end up happening is you get so fixated on persecution and you're afraid and you turn back. Or you get so fixated on politics or wealth or the concerns of the day that you end up forgetting the call to the kingdom. And that ends up rendering you useless within the kingdom. You're like salt that's lost its flavor. There's not much value to salt that loses its flavor except to be tossed out. And so he wants you to make the world taste better. He wants you to stand out in such a way. But be careful not to become so diluted with earthly concerns that you forget what your mission is all about. The next example he uses is the light of the world. You are the light of the world. That's an interesting description of his disciples. Because Jesus being the light of the world, and we talked about this last week, I think, makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jesus actually is like better than everyone at everything. (laughs) Jesus is uh, the one that we should all be looking to. But when he looks at you and he says, you are the light of the world, well, that's quite a challenge to be a follower of Jesus and for him to share who he is and his uh, identity and mission with you. So that not only is Jesus the light of the world, but you are also. The ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, it starts in chapter 4, and it begins with a quotation from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, uh, there's a passage. If you, you, if you look at Matthew 4, verses 14 through 17, you'll see it. He quotes it. He says, All of this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, uh, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then notice verse 16. Those people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them light dawned. If you go back to Isaiah, he's talking about a a city in ruins because of the the destruction uh, of their mighty enemies have come and, and annihilated them. But while they're sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death and they think their lives are ruined and they're in despair and mourning and tragedy and sadness, 
hope and glory and light is actually coming their way. If you keep reading Isaiah chapter 9, he'll end up talking about a king, a son that is given to them and a king that is born to them and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a pretty famous passage in Isaiah and it's, it's right after these verses. That king is the one who is bringing the light. And so Jesus' ministry, if you look at chapter 4 and verse 17, he starts bringing that light from that point forward. He starts saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus starts bringing this kingdom, and then he tells his disciples, and you guys are going to be that light. You are going to continue on the ministry that I'm starting now, and the light of the goodness of God will be seen in you. That is what the king of Isaiah 9 is bringing. That is what Jesus is bringing. That's actually what Israel's purpose was. As you read Isaiah like 49, you'll end up finding about Israel's call to be a light to the nations. That's actually mentioned quite a few times. But they are supposed to be a light to the whole rest of the world to point them towards the goodness of God and who he is. And Jesus is telling these people, who were described in the Beatitudes, the people who most would have thought of as nothing, that I'm not only the light of the world, you are the light of the world as well. He then goes on in verses, uh, verse 14 when he says, you are the light of the world, and then he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. That word hill, by the way, our first lesson of the series on the Sermon on the Mount dealt with that topic of the mountain and how there's several important mountain scenes in Matthew. Well, that word hill is the same word as mountain. Uh, That's the same word that is used to describe that big mountain that Satan took Jesus on to offer him all the kingdoms of the earth, which Jesus rejected. And he comes down that mountain in chapter four, goes up a different mountain in chapter five and brings his kingdom to the people. So he rejects the kingdoms of the earth in order to proclaim his kingdom. And then right in the middle of it, he says, and you guys are a city set on a mountain. It's like you are going to be this different kind of mountain, this different kind of city that all of the cities of the earth around you, all of the different uh, uh, cities where, where the kingdom of God is not the primary mission and the kingdom of God is often mocked and ridiculed, they will be able to see in you something different because you're the salt of the earth. Because you're the light of the world. Because you're the city set on the hill. You are to become the example of the model city. I think that's actually an important understanding for us to have for ourselves. As a community of believers who are followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be an example of a model city. Uh, A city where people aren't starving to death because there's a lot of generosity among us. A city where you can trust the word of the person who's speaking to you. A city where uh, you can uh, have opportunity. And a city where you can serve other people. And a city where there's love. You don't often see that in cities. You often see in cities uh, hierarchies and you see uh, segregation. You see people in one area versus people in another area. And you see a lot of warring and fighting and crime and all of that stuff. And what Jesus is saying is, I want a diversified, different kind of city made up of a lot of different kinds of people, all unified together under a common banner of God and of of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what I want you to proclaim. And that's what I want you to be in the world around you. As you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to give a bunch of examples of what this looks like, whether it's anger. You know, you've, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. Most cities have that law. But I'm telling you, as that city on the hill, as the light of the earth, as the salt of the earth, don't even get angry and insult your brother. Even your words make sure that they are uplifting and building. When it comes to lust, how common is lust and objectification and 
pornography and sexual immorality in those cities around us. I want you to see the value of God in your sisters. I want you to be able to to put uh, the Imago Dei, the image of God, as the forefront in the way that you see one another so that they don't become objects to be used and tossed aside for your own pleasure. No, they are people to be loved and valued and honored. Lust is incompatible with the kingdom of God. When it comes to divorce, when it comes to oaths, when it comes to violence and revenge, you see dishonesty, you see violence, you see uh, retaliation in the cities around us. And he's telling you, I want you to be a different kind of city. I want you to model the kingdom of heaven in the city. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's where the will of God is done in heaven. And we do it on our earth also. So that by looking at this city on the hill, you're getting a glimpse of what God's rule and reign in heaven is all about. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven throughout Matthew. So that you can actually see among his people the reign of the God of heaven on earth. And that's what we pray for. And that's what we long for. And that's what we strive for. And when you do that, you will be letting your light shine. So when you get to verse 16, this will be the final verse that we, we look at. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So we're called to let our light shine and to be seen doing it. Now, remember all of those uh, illustrations that I brought up earlier about things we daydream about, about the perfect comeback in the perfect setting where the whole room laughs and we end up looking great or winning that debate that we're having with that foolish person that we're discussing uh, or, or uh, you know, hitting the home run in the bottom of the ninth or, uh, you know, intercepting the pass in the fourth quarter and taking it all the way in for your team wins. Like whatever your daydream is about greatness in each of those instances, people see your amazing work and they glorify you because of it. What Jesus says is live in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. Um, In Matthew 6, Jesus is going to talk a little bit about righteousness, and he's going to talk about those who practice righteousness in such a way to be seen by men. And he says, don't do that. Even your righteousness can become wrong if you're doing it to receive the glory of men. Rather, live in such a way that when people see you, they glorify God. When people see your actions, they give thanks to the Father of heaven. That's a completely different mindset to have when it comes to the way that we live. But that's the mindset of the kingdom. And it's actually, again, Israel was called to be the light to the nations. Israel was also called to bear the name of God with them wherever they went and to do so with honor, and to do so uh, where that name was sanctified, and it was not carried with them in vain. What I mean is when people looked at ancient Israel, they were supposed to see the goodness of God among those people. They were supposed to be distinct from all of the nations because they were a light. They were supposed to be distinct because they had the name of God with them. But what happens, say, if they carry the name of God with them, but they act just as immoral as the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians? Well, then the name of God is dragged through the dirt. And they've failed at their mission. What happens if they actually do live great lives and people do see a light from them, but they're idolatrous and they're worshiping Molech or Baal or the Asherah or all these other gods? Well, then people will honor those gods instead of the one true God. And all of a sudden, the mission of Israel, again, becomes thwarted because it's not bringing people closer to God. As followers of Jesus, 
I think there's two tasks that we need to make sure we take seriously if our good works are going to bring glory to God rather than ourselves or rather than someplace on this earth. One of them is we actually need to do the good works. Like you actually have to live in this unique, uh, inverted kind of life that's different than the cities around us and that's different than the way of the world. We need to actually live a better kind of life. Have more integrity. Don't lust. Like, actually don't. Uh, Don't respond to people with anger and insult when they deserve it. Uh, Change the way that you live so that you live more like Jesus. Be willing to suffer for love rather than always demand your rights. Everyone, Everyone demands their rights. You're called to live in a different kind of way than that. If you don't, then people will see nothing to glorify God about among us. But secondly, make sure that God is the one who receives the honor for the good that you do. What I mean is there, there's a temptation sometimes, and I'll say one of, one of the greatest avenues that this temptation comes from is politics. If you align yourself so much with a political party, or you're so vocal about a particular way of doing things, then even if you're successful and people end up seeing goodness in what you're saying, they'll end up being more committed to the party that you talk about or to your politics than they are to the God of heaven who transcends that party and who is greater than those politics. If you commit yourself to something temporal here on earth, even if you do good for that thing, so often that thing will become the object of honor and adoration rather than God. If it's selfishness, then you'll become the object of the honor and adoration. If it's your job, then that might be. If it's your politics, then that might be. But we need to be people who not only live the unique countercultural message of Jesus, but we do so in the name of Jesus so that he receives the glory and benefit rather than any of the number of other distractions that might try to steal it from him. And so we will talk a little bit more about how to do that as the the series continues. I'll say, I don't think you have to be creative. If you're going to stand out, if you're going to shine like a light and be the salt of the earth, I don't think you have to come up with unique ways to go out there and stand in the middle of a city block and start shouting like a lunatic so that people will see you and say, ah, he's different. I don't think that's what you have to do. I think Jesus gives us the recipe in the Sermon on the Mount for how to be different. Love where other people hate. Forgive when other people would seek revenge. Compliment when others would insult. Honor when others would objectify. Like, it's in the text. It's in his very words. And if you live this way, you'll live a different kind of life. You'll shine like a light. You'll be the salt of the earth. Perhaps we together can become a city that's set on a mountain that shows a better way forward in the kingdom of heaven. If there's anyone here uh, this morning who would like to commit yourselves to that kingdom, would like to commit yourselves to Jesus in a different way of life, we invite you to do so. If there's anyone here who looks at yourself and you recognize perhaps that's not the way you've been living, we'd again love to help and encourage you in any way that we can. If you'd like to become a Christian this morning, naming Jesus as the Lord of your life and having your sins washed away in baptism, please let that be known. You can talk to some of our elders who I think are going to be in that room right back there, or uh, you can come to the front while we stand and as we sing.